Welcome to the Rising Sea Voices podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Here you will discover and learn from the new generation of coastal, estuarine, and ocean scientists and engineers. My name is Felicia Almeta-Scholt, and I am the Rising Sea Voices host. Today, we are traveling to Europe to talk microplastics. But before starting today's episodes, I would like to offer a land acknowledgement. I live and work in Vancouver, Washington. This land has been cared for and called home by the Chinook Indian Nation, the Cowlitz Indian Tribe, and the Chinookan, Tainapam, and Kilkitat peoples from time immemorial. In the 1800s, the Tainapam Indians were relocated to the Cowlitz Reservation, where the descendants still live today, while many of the present-day descendants of the Kilkitat people are part of the Yakama Nation. The land where I live holds great historical, spiritual, and personal significance for its original stewards. However, there is still no federal acknowledgement of the Chinook as an Indian tribe, and the Cowlitz Indian tribe had to wait until 2000 to be officially recognized by the federal government. I recognize and continue support and advocate for the sovereignty of the native nations in this territory and beyond. Despite centuries of colonial theft and violence, this is still indigenous land. It will always be indigenous land. Indigenous people are not relics of the past, and their talents and knowledge are worth celebrating. Today, my guest is Dr. Delphine Lobel. And Dr. Lobel is a physical oceanographer and postdoctoral researcher at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. She works in a team called Topios, or Tracking of Plastic in Our Seas, which aims at exploring where plastic ends up in the ocean. Delphine specifically investigates algal growth on microplastic and how this affects global 3D transport of ocean plastic. She is also working half-time on a material flow analysis of Dutch plastic waste to estimate how much ends up in the environment. Hello, Delphine. Hello. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no, it's exciting. And uh, yeah, to let our audience know, it's actually, you know, in the morning for me and for yeah. you, it's in the evening. So, but we made it work. Yeah, yeah, we did. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and thank you so much for talking with us today. And um, yeah, and I guess, you know, every time I have this podcast, I like to know a little more about, you know, our guests and their personal and professional story and how they ended up doing what they do today. So I know you've been traveling quite a bunch <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, the world basically. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, let's start with first, like what, you know, got you in that field? Yeah, for sure. So, um, yes, I am originally Belgian. So I, after I was uh, born in, in, in Belgium, then we left to the UK. And that's where I lived until I was nine. And then after that, we moved around Africa and Asia during my school years. So, and since after, after school, I just had the travel bug in me. So I just kept moving for um, at the beginning of my, my science career. And so, yeah, I haven't really lived in, in one place for longer than three years since I was, I was nine. So, yeah, I was mm -hmm. trying to count and the Netherlands is, is actually the eighth country that I've, I've lived in. And wow. so, yeah, I can't really call myself Belgian anymore. I think uh, <laughs> that's long gone. And my parents actually live in Cape Town in South Africa. So I think I'm, I'm almost more South African than, than I am Belgian. <laughs> but yeah, and and I so how I really got into being interested in, in the oceans came from when I was really, really young. So probably due to my name, Delphine, I was really obsessed with dolphins and <laughs> everything in my room was just decorated with dolphin things. And people used to buy me, you know, everything that was uh, dolphin related. And and um, and so. I, I started off wanting to become a dolphin trainer, actually. And then only in my teenage years did I realize that, you know, they were held in captivity and that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, where I wanted to see my, my future going. And so then I realized that I could do marine biology and really investigate, you know, the natural creatures in, in their natural habitat. And so, yeah, I, I um, and, and actually when we were living in, in Kenya, um, when I was 10 years old, 
I started scuba diving. So I was I was really lucky to do that because normally you had to be 12 and I just saw my sister going out and 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 doing that because she was older than me and I, I thought mm-hmm. wow this is way too cool I have to somehow squeeze myself into this this uh, scuba diving world and and yeah so I think all of those you know those experiences uh, really really brought me to be fascinated by the ocean. And yeah, so then when I when I wanted to decide what to study, I I was kind of deciding between marine biology or maybe biology more generally, and and then you know spe- specifying later for my masters, and so that's actually what I decided to do. Um, I did my undergraduates in the UK at Warwick University, and I did that in biological sciences, and that's when I really realized that you know. There are other things that are connected to the sciences that I, I was also really interested in, such as climate change and you know seeing how that impacts species and other things and how all of these these different disciplines are interconnected. And so I'll go into that um, a little bit more later on. But that's uh, that's how I started out in my in my um, yeah in my uh, after school and and then for my masters I went to Cape Town. Uh, and I did applied marine science. So I realized I wanted to do something that was more applied than um, theoretical. And that's where I, I actually saw that I, I thought that connecting the physical and the biologi- biological worlds was actually quite interesting because um, seeing how the physics can affect the biology and the ocean uh, it actually has quite, um, it can have quite a, a, a global and large scale um, view on the whole environmental system. So I thought that that was a, a really uh, interesting way forward. And I actually then decided to do my PhD in physics, in physical oceanography at, uh, at the University of Southampton in the UK. And so I, I really wanted to zoom into more of, of the, the climate change uh, and how the, the oceans and the, and the climate are, are interconnected. And so I was looking into the, the global overturning circulation, so and, and specifically at the Atlantic and seeing how the, the climate, how climate change can affect the circulation and how then the circulation can affect the climate. So it's, it's a, whole, um, a whole cycle there. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and then after that, I, I moved here to the Netherlands, and that was uh, just over two years ago. And so my postdoc is at Utrecht University, and, and so there's, here we, we look at how plastic moves around in the ocean. So we have simulations, and we, can, we basically release particles somewhere in the ocean, and we see where they end up. And we, we look at different processes that can affect this transport of, of the, the plastic in the ocean. And yeah, so then, as you mentioned, I, I also am working on a part-time uh, project on something completely different from oceanography, <laughs> and uh, that's that's looking at at how we can try to you know try to see how plastic can actually end up in the environment, how it ends up in the rivers and then flows into the oceans. So um, I wanted to go way back to the beginning of the chain and see how Dutch plastic waste is collected, how it's processed, how it's, you know, how much of it is sent for recycling, incineration, and then how much can actually eventually enter the environment and, and get lost um, in the environment. Um, so yeah, that's a bit of a, a background, my yeah personal and, and professional background. Yeah, no, that's really um, fascinating, like how you ended up, you know, doing that. And also like the research you're doing now is so important and i think also recently we've seen more in the news um more information you know about microplastic it's not it's nothing really new this problem but the fact that it's getting you know more uh, importance in the media recently with microplastics also like you know microfibers or everything that is ending up also in the water we drink so no that's really really cool so yeah so delphine then because you ex- gave us like a brief you know, explanation of what you're doing. Can you give us a little more like uh, details about your this exciting research? Yeah, sure. So I am a physical oceanographer 
And I thought that it would be good to maybe give a bit of an overview of what that means. So, you know, what, what do we actually do? Because I think the audience will probably come from different, different backgrounds. Right. So, yeah, a, a physical oceanographer basically looks at how the water in the oceans move and how it can transport different elements with it. So this can either be really interesting if you're looking at climate change, for example, because it's moving if there's salt and heat and carbon inside the water, then it's going to be transporting, the oceans will, will transport that water, uh, that, that those elements with it. Um, and, and so it's, it's really important to know this redistribution of, of these, uh, yeah, these different variables. And it's, it can also be interesting for biologists because there's, uh, it transports also nutrients, for example. And for our case, it's transporting plastic, right? So it's not only natural uh, elements, but it can also be man-made ones. And so there are three different types of oceanographers, and that is either um, observationalists, either modelers, or a combination of both. And so for observations, it really means that you go out to the field, you go into the ocean, collect your data, and then can analyze it. And relating to what I was doing for my PhD, I was really lucky enough to be able to do this uh, for, for a part of my PhD because so we were looking at just the Atlantic Ocean circulation. Um, and so we went out on a ship for six weeks. Uh, we left from Tenerife and went to the Bahamas. So we crossed the whole Atlantic. And this was really a, an incredible experience. Um, anyone who's, who's really a, a yeah, lover of the, the cruises, the scientific cruises will, will understand my, uh, my passion for going out onto the ocean. Oh yeah, um, I completely agree with <laughs> that one. I love being outside and being on a boat, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just incredible. And, and it's just, you know, completely disconnecting from the world, from your routine, from, you know, responsibilities and, and just focusing on what you have to do for, you know, to collect your, your data and, and yeah, and, and really getting to to know you know different different people that you would normally not cross paths with right so the the crew members for example these are right. I, I think that's it's it's a really exciting time yeah be and, friend with the cook the cook yeah. must be your friend <laughs> yeah, yeah for sure you always end up putting on kilos in these these cruises <laughs> And um, yeah, and, and so specifically for what we were we were doing, it was it was also an incredibly um, you know a, a huge in engineering feat because it's going out and and using a, a huge crane on the back of the the ships to place moorings into the water, and so this can be these long chains that have instruments on them, and these these chains can be uh, six kilometers long, you know, so from the wow. sea surface down to to the bottom. So it's it's really incredible to see this. And, um, and, and yeah, so, so that was a, a really, really cool experience. And then you can get, uh, that has to be every, every year and a half, uh, they go out and, and do this to, to collect the data every time, um, and, and replace them. So this is, yeah, this is called the rapid cruise, uh, for anyone interested. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and then there's the, the other side, that's the, the modeling world. So this is where you really use, you know, computer simulations and, so, for example, when it comes to climate change, this is a really important part of, of the analyses because so, you know, to, to predict where where the climate could um, the, the state of the climate will be in 2100, for example, then there are these climate simulation um, models where, you know, it's, it's really taking the entire globe and trying to simulate what the atmosphere and the ocean will look like in different scenarios. So if we keep producing the same amount of carbon dioxide in the system um, and so on. And so this, I was actually using these such models also for, um, for my PhD. So the UN has a branch like a climate change branch uh, called the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And there, there are institutes from around the globe that produce these, these global simulations. And so there are around 50 models in total. And so you can really compare these different models, take an average and, you know, use this as a prediction of what will happen in the future. Um, and so, yeah, so 
I, I kind of fell under this third category of uh, physical oceanographer where I was combining both, you know, comparing what the observations were from uh, these, these, um, these mooring data uh, that were in the ocean constantly and, and we were collecting this data and then from the models and, and trying to, you know, to see what will happen uh, and, and see if we can, we can predict if the Atlantic Ocean circulation is slowing down because this is the, the big um, fear with, with climate change that it can be affecting the, the circulation in this way. Hmm. And uh, yeah, so that was a bit of, of my PhD. And now, now for my postdoc, I'm really focusing on models. So we're really, um, we, we use these, these models to try to represent what, um, what, how the, the water is moving. And we also take other properties like temperature and salinity. And then we try to, we release particles and, and we track them. So we, we see where they end up, uh, following the 3d, the 3d currents. And yeah, what I'm specifically looking at is actually, again, combining biology and physics. So I'm seeing how if algae grows on the surface of a particle of, uh, of plastic, then it will it can change the, the density of the of the particle because of the fact that if it's floating at the surface and then there's something that grows on it, it will become heavier and it can sink. And so this is where, you know, we're, we're really trying to see where does plastic end up? So current estimates show that of all the plastic that ends up in the ocean, only about 1% is on the surface of the ocean. Okay. And yeah, this is, this is really a, a very kind of shocking um, result because it shows that, you know, the, the rest, the 99%, where does it all go? Right, and this is really the the aim of our our project tracking of of plastic in our seas, and and we're really trying to see you know um, where is this this ninety nine percent and and actually one of the PhD students in my in my team Victor Onink he uh, published a paper this year with some other co authors to show that around seventy percent of the plastic that ends up in the ocean actually stays very close to the coastline. So it either stays on the beaches or close to 10 kilometers off from, from the coastline um, offshore. And this is, this is a really great um, discovery, I guess, because this means that you can, these cleanup efforts, so the, the beach cleanups, they could have a lot more impact than previously thought because you know, <laughs> we, people didn't really know, like, is this actually doing something? You know, is it just kind of to... To provide people with this sense of you know they're doing something for the planet or can it actually help you know and and this shows that it, it actually could so um yeah and when and when it comes to the rest so you know we're, we're left with about 20 to 30 percent um of of the plastic that it's it's kind of unknown where it goes and so this is where i you know i i my my work steps in and and i really look at okay, how much of that, that, that floating plastic can actually sink uh, below the surface and, and is it due to these algal, um, these, these algal growth, uh, the, the algal growth and attachments on, on the, the surface. So yeah, that's, that's a, bit of, a bit more detail into, into what I do. Yeah, and also I was curious, like, because microplastic, I guess, can be also ingested by different living organisms too so i guess that's the tricky part too in your model too like how do you also between you know what is going to sink and maybe being buried in sediments maybe or moved in different places or yeah ingested like yeah like mm -hmm. that's a very good question and and um it's good because it's a very complicated part uh, of the modeling world you know it's it's until now we've only been able to simulate each particle separately and we haven't so the the actual um tool that we're using it didn't allow for the separation of uh of particles or the merging of particles so yeah, I, I won't go into all the the algorithm details to um, to explain why, but it's you know it was um, it was very complicated to to set that up until now, and so now what's exciting is we can really start analyzing this. So the fragmentation, so when when you know one large uh, item breaks down into smaller pieces, we can start putting this into our models. And, and also the merging. So that can be that, you know, one particle in our simulation could be, for example, a fish and another particle could be a plastic. And so then you merge them um, 
and then you can simulate where that fish would migrate to, for example. And so, yeah, this is this is currently, um, yeah, under study. So it's it's not something that I can I can provide with uh, results for you today. <laughs> but <laughs> but stay tuned. Maybe in uh, a year or so, we'll have some results. Yeah. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Yeah, and it's like such a large scale. I mean, you're looking at that also at a, you know, at a very large scale, right? So it's also like pretty tricky. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, more so from like a biology then point of view if I go into the nitty-gritty and like how you have different you know species and after you think of you know species migration and places where it's warmer maybe microplastic you know like you say is going to be affected by temperature changes as well so yeah well but just you know I should stop thinking about it right now because I'm like <laughs> starting you know like yeah so you know it's really really cool and um and you said another part of you know your side project when you're working half time it's really interesting though that you're looking at the source and how it's getting there because yeah now you have this information okay in the ocean and that will help also to figure out then what kind of actions could we take to remove that plastic um but after can we just remove the plastic not having the plastic out there in the first place where is it it coming from yeah so really the main the main solution for this ocean plastic issue is prevention right so it's before obviously what's in the environment we would we would love to remove it even though yeah microplastic once it reaches this this tiny tiny uh these tiny sizes so smaller than five millimeters for example it's really really hard to remove it from the environment so if you try to filter it out in any way you're going to be capturing some uh living organisms that are required for the the entire ecosystem so it's it's really important to prevent it from reaching these tiny particle um you know these these really small fragments um and and preventing them from from reaching the the ocean and and the rivers and yeah so that's why i was really interested in looking at the whole uh management plastic management uh, waste management system and actually it was it was interesting for me to start with you know the netherlands which is actually in europe it's it's uh, shown in the European statistics as one of the countries with the best uh, recycling statistics, um, you know, and and that they they have a really good setup for waste management. And so it's it's actually really interesting to see that even though they have this, you know, um, they're they're one of the leaders in Europe for for yeah circular economy and and that they have all these these goals, um, that's, that there is still plastic that ends up in the environment. So it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. It makes it a little like, yeah. And challenging for, I guess, the other countries because I'm like, oh, you know, they're already putting, you know, the bar, you know, that high, but now, so if there's still like some challenges, um, how the other countries are going to catch up. So that's, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, and, and actually, one of one of the parts of my um, of the the results so far from from this side project is that it's really this import and export of plastic waste that is is actually very uh, yeah it's 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 shocking how much of it is exported and imported. Um, and to give you an, an idea, in the Netherlands. The amount of plastic waste that's imported is about half of the total amount of, of plastic waste that's generated within the country. So mm. it's really huge amounts. And it's and what's even more shocking is that it, there's not a lot of information on where that plastic then goes. So how much of it is processed? How much of it is it's, you know, the Netherlands is only a transit country because Rotterdam, uh, the, the port here, 
is the biggest port in Europe. And so it's known that a lot of this, this plastic can just, you know, go to the harbor and then be shipped off somewhere else to be processed. And, and, and so there's really not a lot of visibility on, on all these, this, uh, these waste flows. And, and, um, and then once it actually gets exported, it's exported to so many different places and the once it's it's sold to another country they don't have any responsibility to see if you know if that waste that waste is no longer dutch waste so they don't have to see whether it's properly managed right so it's really uh yeah there's there's really a lot that still needs to be done with with the trading of, of plastic waste and um yeah i found this quite quite surprising actually <laughs> yeah and you're right and that has been also you know in the news not that so not so long ago with like all those waste going to Asia and and at some point those countries were like, no, we don't want those yeah. waste anymore. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. 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 So there was a ban in, in China uh for mm-hmm. the so there are no uh there's there's a, a complete ban from I think all countries in the world that can't send their waste to China and unless it has you know a very uh small percentage of contamination which basically never happens. So, but this just means that, you know, there's the, the waste is now being sent to other places and, and it's actually being scattered to more, you know, more countries. So it's harder to track even. Uh, yeah. So that's another, another issue that needs to be addressed. Yeah. So it's really cool that for your research, you're looking actually, you know, you're like a physical oceanographer, but you had to look a little also at the management, a waste management to have a better understanding than where it's coming from and where it will go. Yeah, I mean, I would say that this isn't a kind of um, typical path for physical oceanographers. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm really lucky because I have a boss that's really flexible with allowing you to really discover what you're interested in and and do lots of different things. And, you know, he knows that. So his, his name is Eric Van Sabiel for anyone in the... In the ocean plastic world, you know, he's he's really um, one of one of the the leading top scientists in, in this field, and he's he's just um, a, a really great boss because he he sees the potential of each of the his his different employees and and really allows everyone to just follow different different paths and and realizes that being a scientist, you know, you don't. Um, not everyone is, is the same and some will have different skills. And so it's, it's really great to be able to, to follow, you know, if, if someone is really interested in just doing, you know, the, the pure science and, and just running the simulations and, and, you know, producing publications and, and is really driven by that. Well, great. You know, you do that. And then if someone else is more interested in, I guess, science communication, like me, that I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm speaking to you right now and, and, um, <laughs> Or you know, doing these random side projects, then I, I think it's it's so important to have someone that that really understands that you want to during your PhD and your postdoc, you really want to just be um, jump onto you know jump on on all these opportunities and and really discover what you enjoy doing. Yeah. No, I agree because it's going through those you know experiments. I mean, life experience that you're also going to figure out what you like and what you don't, and where you want to go next. And um, it makes me think, like, because you've been exploring, I guess, different facets of the plastic world, if I put it this way, like, what was the most, you know, let's say, exciting or unexpected or challenging while going, you know, doing this kind of research? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I would say that when it comes to my research that, um, you know, and and really the results that, that I found, so... When I was looking into these, when I, I was running these these global simulations, so I'm, I've now well, I've, I've published one paper and, and the second one is under review. Um, and from the first paper, uh, one of the the really interesting findings that that we saw is that um, the the locations where the majority of the plastic actually accumulates in the ocean. So um, I, I'm not sure if you've heard of these five gyres. So it's the subtropical regions where um, there's a convergence of the of the currents. And so this means that anything that's transported in the ocean will just gather and collect in those regions. So the Great Pacific Garbage Patch has been on the news for a lot. Um, because this is, you know, one of the places where it's it's uh, the highest concentrations of plastic in the ocean, 
And so there, you know, there are some organizations that are looking into cleaning that up and uh, like the ocean cleanup, for example. Um, and, you know, we, we were focusing in on, on some of these, these regions and we actually saw that these uh, places are also known as oligotrophic. So this is where you have very low biological activity. So very few phytoplankton and algae. And so this means that the, the plastic pieces, uh, so the really tiny, um, yeah, plastic, microplastic, uh, if you want to call it like that, it's the, the, uh, the effects of algal concentration, the effects of algal attachments on the, the particle is actually very low because you don't have a lot of algae there. So it means that there's, um, if the, the particles do sink, then they don't sink very deep and they stay close to, to the surface. And so, you know, this could be interesting for those who want to, to clean it up, you know, not just focusing on, on the surface, for example, but a little bit deeper also. And you, you, could, you could actually get um, some of the smaller particles that have sunk. Uh, but then in other regions, you know, we see that there is, that some of this, this plastic can actually sink very deeply. And so this is where, you know, you have a lot of wind mixing, for example, and so, um, or, you know, other areas where you have a lot of algae, algal concentration that's at the surface. So this means that, you know, it's, it can, uh, it can really sink to thousands of, of meters deep. Uh, and, and yeah, so this contrast in, in where plastic can end up due to differences, um, yeah, in different regions and, and different properties of, in the water is, is really, yeah. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, it is. And like you said, it's going to inform um, what kind of actions could be taken in the future for, you know, to help with cleanup. And um, yeah, and it's true. I Because in the news, you hear more about the, you know, garbage patch. But I was, yeah, I didn't think about those other regions when it gyres where actually things are going to also like, um, you know, concentrate. Yeah. And, and who do you see then, um, actually it's like a good, you know, segue to that. Like, who do you see then, um, how your work is going to be able to fit into that, like, um, you know, into the challenges, like trying to figure out, okay, how deep is going to be, the microplastic is going to be, where it's going to travel. And, um, what do you think is going to be the, the next step to that or how that is going to help really inform let's say specific actions, but also I'm wondering because like worldwide that you're looking at that, um, not all countries can do, you know, the same level of efforts or you need more international cooperation as well, because if you are in the high seas, it's basically kind of like no man's land. So who is going to be in charge of doing what? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I, I think that's, yeah, definitely political action when it comes to, you know, um, who is, who's in, in power and who can actually, um, yeah, for example, when it's, when it comes to Europe, uh, there's this single use, uh, ban, a single use plastic ban that has just gone into effect, uh, over the summer this year. And this means that, you know, for example, I was, uh, I was at, um, a restaurant recently now that we can finally go back to restaurants <laughs> um and i always say you know if i get like a cocktail or something i always say you know i, I don't want a, a straw please and even there they said oh we're not allowed to give any plastic straws anymore so it's it's only in paper so i see that you know it's it's not just kind of something that you hear in the news and it doesn't have any effect it's, it's actually being implemented that this this single-use plastic ban is uh you know, is, is actually, uh, reaching the, the businesses and the, and the commercial world. Um, and so I think that this is, you know, this is one, one way for it. And it's, it's really, um, making sure that there are, uh, there's, it's, it's a priority in the, um, in the political sphere that it's actually taken seriously and that that's, there are, there are bans or that, they they focus on waste management systems that in countries that are um, do not have the facilities right now, right? So so actually right. having having a way in which you know the those countries that that can help and share other countries like low income countries um, 
to really improve their their waste management systems. Um, and it's actually, you know, it's it's the high income countries that produce the most waste, and then it's it's the low income countries that either receive this a lot of this this waste, um, mm-hmm. or else that you know can't manage their their own waste even. Um, so it's it's there, you know, there's there's kind of the the politicians, and there's really the the waste management system, and then it's also down to even the production of of plastics. So Right now, there are just so many different types of plastic that are produced, and one product can be a blend of lots of different types of plastic. And so this means that the recycling process is really hard, uh, and these these uh, processing facilities um, they can't actually you know deal with with all this waste. Um, and uh, and yeah, the, it, it means that the that's really from the the production level of um of yeah of plastic it, it needs to be needs to be improved too uh and i guess the final step of that is really down to the the use so you know those that are are uh using the the, the products to make sure that it's it's being uh it's not being directly littered you know and and um and also i i think that it's shifting away from realizing that there are some products that you don't need to actually buy with plastic wrapping, right? So if you go and, and, and do your weekly shop at a market, um, if you have the financial needs, means to do so, then, mm-hmm. you know, the, these kind of small shifts can actually make, make a big, a big difference. Um, so I, I'm not a supporter of saying, well, it's only the politicians that have to do something <laughs> or it's only human behavioral change. It's really, I think it's, it's a real, um, a wholesome kind of uh, yeah, I have more of a, a wholesome view on on the whole situation, and and I think that it really has to be top down and bottom up um, when it comes to yeah to finding solutions for this. Um, no, yeah, no, I agree. It has to be really across yeah, definitely all the different levels and across you know. Um, industries and society and and work and having this like yeah society science and policy working together and and even i guess for your work is highly um transdisciplinary as well because you're looking at you know biology and and the physics and i was curious like for your research have you been also doing some collaborations with I don't know, chemist, because I was thinking like you, it just, I just thought of how you told me and like how plastic can be composed of, you know, different kind of plastics. And I guess these can also maybe have different kind of effects. I don't know, on the environment, yeah, depending of what they're made of. Yeah, it's, it's true that different, yeah, different types of plastic can, um, can obviously break down in different ways. You know, they can, um, their, their composition can, um, it can affect the, the amount of time that it, it's you know it it takes before it it starts breaking down, um, and but you know these uh, as you say this is really kind of the chemical level and and understanding yeah. the compounds within the the plastic, and in my research um, I have not been collaborating with with chemists um, so far, but you know this is I think it's it's a really it's a good point because it's you know if we want to have a, a kind of a global model to understand all of the plastic that ends up in the ocean and, and where it goes then you know um since yeah I, I mean i mentioned it that we're only just at this at the stage where we can uh simulate the fragmentation so the next step would definitely be to speak to the chemists and and you know have a collaboration um uh in that sense to be able to see okay how how should we now uh, decide how long it takes, you know, how to before we split these these particles, or you know, how would it react to different, um, yeah, chemical components that are in the ocean too? So yeah, I think I think that would be a, a really interesting uh, collaboration. Yeah, and it might be the never-ending project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, For but sure. it's uh, no, it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the thing is that it's, it's a very, um, I know that, you know, at the beginning you, you mentioned that it's, it's not new, but if you look at 
the the novelty of of it related to other parts of ocean science that have been around for so long this you know the mass production of, of plastic was only uh it only started in the 1950s so it's only been a few decades in which and and it was i think in the 1970s it was the the first time that the plastic was recorded in the the ocean so you know it's it's really only been about 50 years that we've we've started looking into uh the the effects of of plastic in in the environment and so that's it's it actually is quite new and there's it's it's uh in that sense i thought it was really exciting to be part of this this research because it was really you know everything that you discover is 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 new and it's it's um yeah, it's uh, it's a, yeah, it's exciting for me in that sense. Um, but it it also means that it's quite difficult because in science, if you don't have something to base it on, or you know, if if you don't have measurements, for example, it's it's really hard to get measurements of particles that are smaller than five millimeters everywhere in the ocean, right? So <laughs> we we really don't have data on on a lot of data that's that's been collected in the ocean. Um, and so we're really basing everything off, off the, the simulations and theory and, um, and yeah, so I, I think there's, there's a really, there's a, a long way to go. Um, and it's actually one of the, the sciences where, uh, or, or one of the, the topics where for once it's been the media that has come first, right? So the media has had, uh, has put a lot of attention on, on plastic and plastic pollution, yeah. And it's kind of like the scientists are trying to catch up and trying to see, okay, we, we know that this is a, an issue and no one wants this plastic to be in the environment, but how much of an, a threat is it actually to the species, to human health? Uh, you know, this is really just, we're just scratching the surface and trying to understand all these things. So, yeah. Yeah, lots, you're totally right. To and mm -hmm. I'm glad that you, you made that, you know, you brought back things into perspective about the production of plastic, because I guess, you know, based on my age, you know, being born in the early 80s, um, it, I always knew non-plastic, you know, but it was not always this way. And it's interesting to see like, no, it just, yeah, it's like, yeah, 30, 40 years. But um, yeah, so that's really interesting to put that into perspective and to see like also, how this problem has been accumulating over time and now it's becoming at this point that, yeah, we need to do really do something about that. So, Yeah, and I mean, maybe I can, I can also just um, jump in with a, a different point that is that, you know, plastic, the, the actual production of, of plastic and, and this material, it's, it's really, um, it's an incredible, uh, you know, invention, this, this, this plastic material, because it's really advanced a lot of things in, um, in medicine, in, you know, like keeping things sterile, for example, that was really not something that before plastic could, could be done. And, and the preserving of, of products, um, you know, it's, there's, right. there's really, um, the, the fact that it is now really used in so many products and, and for so many different uses just shows that it was, it's really this, this incredible invention. And so it's, it's not something that, you know, we should, we shouldn't think that plastic is bad. It's just the way that plastic is actually processed and the, mm -hmm. the, you know, once it becomes waste, what happens to it? So it's, it's the end of life of the, of the product that really needs to be, you know, uh, yeah, addressed and, and, and that there it's, it's becoming a, a problem only once it, it actually reaches the environment. And, and when the idea of circular economy is not part of the actual production of, of plastic. Right. And that's, yeah. Thank you again. That's a really good point because <laughs> yeah. And because when you see in the media, I mean, right now, some of the messages like, yeah, plastic is bad and we should do something about plastic. But like you said, it's really like this really useful, you know, product that we use in so many parts of our lives. And like you mentioned, like really important ones like um, healthcare, but, and, and research, then yeah and after it's like everything like you, you need to figure out like what also is it needed to use plastic or not and after yeah make sure we have a product that can be recycled and also make sure it's done properly yeah so a lot of work and and talking about that what is your your what you would like to see to improve or or change at this level or like the 
what is your vision of the future you would like to see, you know, uh, related to plastic? Yeah. Or your um, research. Yeah. Uh, so when it when it comes to <laughs> to plastic and and I think I yeah I'm I'm gonna make it a bit more kind of extensive and and you know a bit wider than than just plastic because I should probably start by saying that you know apart from this uh, the side project for the material flow analysis I've also been do doing a lot of other work on the side of of my daily research. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing a lot of um, kind of public engagements, uh, stakeholder engagement, outreach, and, you know, I'll, I'll kind of go into each of these a little bit so that I can, yeah, I can kind of show you where I would love for research in general and the scientific community to, to you know, to move uh, to. So, um, yeah, for the past two years, I've, I've really been interested in connecting people. And I've done this in, in a few ways. So I first started off um, uh, co-founding um, Ocean Plastic Webinars, which is a monthly webinar series. So this is to connect the, the ocean plastic researchers around the, the globe, because it was really hard to know sometimes, you know, what different people are working on, or unless you go to a, a kind of a big conference that's, you know, mm -hmm. once a year or, or once every two years for, uh, for microplastic, for example, um, you know, you're not really updated with with uh, people's work until um, you maybe see their papers or something. But um, yeah, so this this was something that I started with three other early career researchers uh, last year, and um, yeah, and and it's it's live, uh, you know, live broadcasted um, on YouTube, and so people can ask questions, and it's it's quite. Um, yeah, informal and 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 easy to to follow. I think so. Um, so anyone anyone can access it, you know. And like, yeah. if I want to, okay. So if I want to yeah. watch it, okay, awesome. So I would definitely yeah. share the link uh, on the yeah, yeah, on the sure. website. Yeah, yeah, and you can rewatch the YouTube videos afterwards. So it can really, you know, you can if you can't fit uh, if it doesn't work with your time zone, you can watch it later. So yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, and then I I um, I was involved in the organization of the Ocean Vision Summit. So Ocean Visions is they aim to bridge the disconnect between research and ocean solutions, and so they really want to form this this network of scientists, businesses, NGOs, foundations, philanthropists. You know, everyone who can basically who's interested in ocean solutions and who can be part of of finding those those solutions and so yeah it was this um it was a, a obviously a virtual um summit because it was in may this year yeah and and it was it was super exciting because we had this space where we were really inviting people within and outside of academia and it was uh we we were focusing on having these kind of um very interactive sessions so we had mirror boards and you know people could put their sticky notes in different places and and you had the the audience uh members actually answering questions themselves and then we had experts that were that were there to comment on what the the audience was 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 writing and so it was it was really cool to see different perspectives you know from the the political perspective so we had an ex-eu um, commission officer who was there and um you know she was providing her her views on um on the ocean plastic situation and um and then we had some um businesses that were for example uh preventing the the plastic from entering the ocean with litter booms um on the in the rivers uh then there were you know plastic scientists uh so so my boss for example who was the physical oceanographer explaining where the plastic came end up so it was it was really cool to to see um you know that if you bring all these different players and these these different stakeholders together and trying to form see where compromise can um can be reached or you know um for me the the real interest in, in all of this stakeholder engagement space is to actually be able to drive the the research into a particular way where you can reach ocean solutions so I feel like there are a lot of PhD students and, and postdocs that are kind of not sure where they want to direct their research or um, 
you know, if, if you actually have an aim that comes from, you know, this is, this is a need for society. This is something that uh, we really need to know more about. And that is, it's coming from beyond the scientific community. Then I think it's also something that, that gives, you know, you as a scientist also, you realize like, Oh, I can, I can, you know, focus on this thing that, that is actually really applicable to something um, beyond, beyond the scientific, uh, the scientific world. And it's, it's very um, kind of a direct impactful uh, research. And I, I feel like there are a lot of my peers, at least um, that are interested in, in, or that would love to, to be part of something that, you know, is, is, uh, is like this. So, yeah, basically the this Ocean Visions uh, Summit was the start of of my interest in stakeholder engagement and um, and this dialogue between scientists and and other stakeholders and um, and kind of from that that Ocean Vision Summit and um, and and realizing that there's there's still work to do um, I've, I've co-founded a a work a working group um, that's called Ocean Bridges and it's the aim is to bridge uh, the different generations, so basically early career ocean professionals with mid or late career professionals um, that can, uh, you know, have this exchange of, of information where it's basically where the, the kind of experienced ocean professionals can provide the early career ocean professionals with their um uh, their their advice, their experience uh, with their network, and that can really help um, what's called ECOPS, these early career ocean professionals, to excel in their in their work. And you know, on, it can be a definitely a win win situation where then the experienced ocean professionals can learn from the the early career ones because there's you know there's um, there's this really big network of early career researchers and other professionals that are interested in, in uh, you know, in, in doing this kind of collaborative and interdisciplinary work. And so, and, and they also have their ways of, you know, we, we have so many tools now that are ready to connect people on a global scale. Um, and, and this can provide something for the, you know, for the experienced um, ocean professionals. So, yeah, it's kind of connecting intergenerational and interdisciplinary and intersectoral um, networks and and try to to bring them all together and and yeah, I think it's a, a really exciting time to be an ocean scientist because there's the UN Ocean Decade. So, in case yeah, uh, listeners have not heard about what it is, <laughs> it's um, it's basically from this year until 2030 where this decade has been marked uh, by the, the UN as the decade of ocean science for sustainable development. And so this just really puts a focus on the fact that we, you know, there's this recognition of the oceans needing to, um, you know, being, being under threat basically, and that the ocean solutions are really needed right now. And, this is through research and through collaboration and through really bringing, bringing all the, the players together. So yeah, this is definitely something that I want to do next after my, my postdoc. And I, I think that, you know, having had be, been in academia and seeing the whole research world, I can really see how much it would benefit from, from all these, these other collaborations. And so, and I don't think I would have re reached this stage without having done my PhD and my postdoc. So I think it's really, it's really cool to see that you know that's that's kind of where I, where I see my future at least, and where I think that there's this you know this this gap and and this um, this missing link that I think is is important for research in general, um, not just for for plastic, but really yeah related to climate change and and other really um, pressing issues related to the oceans. Yeah, I think I mean you've been so busy. It's amazing what you've been doing <laughs> and how involved. But it shows also how dedicated you are. And I think it's amazing that you've been using this time that, or at least to make time for that, because like you said, you, it seems like you really had at heart to make sure that your work is also going to be, you know, applicable and be useful. And I think um, all you talked about, all this stakeholder engagement, it helps also to identify where the needs are, where the challenges are, and help also having um, more, like, you know, sometimes 
yes, scientists can be like in their ivory tower and people outside of that don't know how to reach out. So the fact that there is a way to connect them and to basically find synergies and find a way to work together is really powerful and we help to move things forward. And And I like to see the fact that you help really with ocean bridges. Um, often, you know, when you start academia, I felt it all like, you know, I had to get up to speed on my own. You know, I had to, you know, find connections and do everything on my own. But no, <laughs> you don't have to do it this way. And I think it helps to find those mentors and those people who can help you. And after, because they are there, they are out there. And the fact that, you know, you can connect, yeah, having those mentors, people are more like experience in that field, connecting with like the new generation of scientists and researchers who have all those new ideas. Also maybe more comfortable with new tools, uh, you know, or methods. It's really powerful to, to continue to have this exchange too. It's not, yeah, like you said, it goes both ways also when you have those exchanges as well. There is so much to learn from both sides. So I think it's great that you've been doing this work because it shows that um, how everything needs to be, we need more exchange and communication collaboration at this level. We cannot just work in our own little bubble and, yeah. um, you know, and expect exchange to happen or put the blame on others. So, yeah. yeah. And, and I think, I think something that I should mention too, is that, so this, these, um, the early career ocean professionals, so ECOPS, they've mm -hmm. recently been, this, this program has recently been endorsed by the UN ocean decade. And so it means that there's really this kind of, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not just a, a kind of a random group of people that have come together, but it's, it's really something that the UN actually sees as, as something that's key and important to, uh, for for the for ocean science, and it's it means that you know if if you're an early career researcher, for example, or an early career professional uh, doing something linked to the oceans, you can really you're already an ECOP. You know, it's not something where you have to sign up and you have to be. You know, it's it's really something where if you start your own kind of initiative, you can just directly say that you this is an ECOP initiative, and it's it's something that you know you you're then part of this this community, and we have a Slack group, um, and it's it's all very open and flexible, and and anyone who kind of identifies themselves as an early career. Um, yeah, in their early career, then they can they can really join the community and and see what opportunities there are and um, and yeah. So I, I think it's it's really um, if anyone is is really interested in, in you know doing something like this, then yeah, I, you can either contact um, me. I'm sure my my email will be uh, around on on the the website, but also um, you know just just to look it up. And it's it's the early career ocean ocean professional um, program, UN UN Ocean Decade program, yeah. So, and I make uh, sure to have all those links. You know everything you mentioned. I make sure to to share those links as well on the website. And if people, audience, want to learn more about the UN Ocean Decade, we actually have a show about the UN Ocean Decade uh, on ESPN, the American Shoreline Podcast Network. So you can check that out too. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much going on that it's it's just um, it's it's really exciting, and I think one of one of the really good things too is that uh, these organizations are starting to realize that you know there's been a, a kind of a lack of valuing the the early career professionals. Um, you know, people think like, oh, they they probably have more time than than us, and and you know they'll be happy to volunteer their time, but there's really this this transition towards actually finding some financial compensation or some other compensation um, for, you know, for people that are, are volunteering um, to, to help out in, in some of these activities. So I think, I think that's also a really positive way forward. And, and, and yeah, because, you know, you have to realize that you've, you've actually got this, this really cool expertise and, and this, um, you know, this enthusiasm or, you know, whatever, however you want to be involved, you should be somehow valued for your, your time. Yeah. I agree. But no, mm -hmm. that's great. And also the fact that you don't have to feel that you have to be for 20 years in that field before you can join in. Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, we can yeah. bring, we all bring something to the table, no matter yeah, yeah. the stage we are at. In for sure and mm -hmm. and i actually think that it's it's almost better to have you know fresh ideas and 
and bring something new to the table, you know, even if it's a crazy idea, I think it's actually <laughs> that's when like innovative thoughts come come about, right? So I think I think it's actually even better if you haven't been in the field for 20 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. And um yeah, and because I mean you you've been giving us like so many <laughs> great things to check out and I definitely share the links. And I was wondering because yeah, we're getting uh, toward the end of our time. I don't want to take too much of your time, and but mm-hmm. it's been fantastic talking with you. Um, <laughs> <I've enjoyed it. laughs> I was wondering if the you know any final um, message you would like to share, you know, with our audience or anything you recommend us to check out. I mean, I would definitely share all uh, all the information, all the links to different you know initiatives you've been involved you know with. But anything else you would like to share with us? Yeah, I mean, I I think so, you know, being a scientist can feel quite overwhelming if you're, you're saying, um, you know, if if you're in your PhD, if you're in your master's uh, postdoc, you kind of feel like you need to have so many skills to succeed, right? So you have to be a good writer, a good, um, you know, do do good uh, literature reviews, as in read a lot of uh, papers and, um, and also communicate well and so there there are so many different you know parts of of being a scientist that um if you went into you know a corporate company for example there would be one person that's in charge of the communication one person that's in charge of you know writing and and here you have to have all of these skills but i think it's really important to realize that even though yeah you have to have a little bit of all those those skills you can really try to realize what it is that you are actually, what your strengths are and identify this with your supervisor, your, um, I think in the U S it's, it's a different word, but basically your boss and, and sit down with them and, and have a chat with them and say, you know, I really enjoy doing outreach and I want to have some time in my working hours to be able to do this. Are you okay with this? You know, and really be open about it. And, I think there is this this transition towards you know realizing that linking science to other other things and and finding the connections between your research and society and policy and whatever else it is. Um, I think there is this this you know this um, this realization that it's that it's important, and you know um, I, I think it's. So really this, this self-reflection towards what do I actually enjoy doing and what am I good at and how can I incorporate that into my, my work and, and how can I present it in such a way that, you know, my, it will also be in line with what my boss is expecting from me and, you know, how it can also help the university that I'm in and everything. So I think that people get a bit, um, yeah, overwhelmed that they have to just be amazing at everything and, there are sometimes ways in which you can, you know, focus on one one of your skills a little bit more in, in depth, and and actually discover, you know, if, if this is uh, something that that you're interested in pursuing after your whatever position you're in. So yeah, I think I think that's something that I learned recently, and that I, I hope that others uh, would also not be too shy to to look into. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And that's really good advice because we also think that things have to be, like you said, either really good at everything and we're not mm. superhumans, so we yeah. can do that. Or thinking yeah. that things we like are going to be on the side, but they can be merged with what we do. And that makes me think, for example, of art. Um, you know, people, like some artists, definitely can integrate that into their work, either to reach out to the public, but also just to you know, integrate that in their research as well. It could be a not component too. So I think it's uh can be really powerful and it's good also for your well being, you know, because I think when you go through a PhD and postdoc, I mean it's it's a lot. <laughs> and uh and being able to do something that you like too and like you say, like your strength is something that you know passionate about or something that gives you more energy to continue the work and and help you with your well-being and to stay sane and not burned out, I think is really important. And I like that you said that, that yeah, don't be afraid to speak out and um, and to to talk, have this discussion with your boss or supervisor, advisor, 
because it's really important. Yeah. And you yeah, do better research, you do better work too. For sure. Yeah. And it's, it's the only way to really normalize that, that's, um, you know, that situation It's it's, if there are more and more people saying, you know, we don't just want to be publishing or we don't just want to be, uh, you know, running simulations or, or being in the lab, you know, it's, it's really saying that you want to, to be part of, of lots of things. And then, and then more and more, um, yeah, of the of the supervisors will will get on board with that and and realize it's important. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, it's like a lot of good advice. I know sometimes it's easy to just give the advice, but after you know to do it. But you know, um, I hope um, this will help. You know, anyone to feel more confident about doing that, even with your current job. You know, so I think it's really important to to make space for that. But, um, yeah, thank you so much, Delphine. It's been, you know, fantastic to talk with you and I'm happy that we made this work. Thank you.